This episode contains graphic descriptions of crime scenes, which may be disturbing to some listeners. Today, we're bringing you the story of a 14-year-old girl who walks to a nearby drugstore on a quick errand for her mother. She returns briefly to get more money from her mom, but then never comes home. Over the course of more than 50 years, police have looked at potential suspects, and now the list is narrowing. This is APB Cold Case. Here's your host, former police chief Mark Spahn. Jamestown, New York is the largest city in Chautauqua County, and it's the westernmost county in New York State, about seven miles from the Pennsylvania border. In 1972, 14-year-old Patricia Fairbanks, or Patty as many people called her, lived in Jamestown with her mother, older sister, and younger brother. Her biological father was out of the picture and had been for a long time, and her stepfather had left the home a couple years before under what police would say was a cloud of suspicion. Tom DeZena was a seasoned detective who's currently working on the case. Patty Fairbanks uh, is a young girl of 14 years old. She's in a troubled home, and she's out on the street with young people who have similar backgrounds with her. Uh, Troubled home doesn't get along very well at home. Uh, There's even gotten to the point of custody discussions to remove her from the home. So she is uh, out and about. Patty's a a smart young lady, but she's not a school person. Unfortunately for her, she's bigger than a normal 14-year-old. So she attracts a lot of bad attention. Investigator DeZeno takes us back to the night when Patricia went missing. On the night of November 28th of 1972, right about Thanksgiving, she is home with her mother and her younger brother, who the mother has assigned Patty to take care of that child. The little boy is with her often, but the little boy needs uh, something from the pharmacy. Mother ask Patty to go to the pharmacy. Patty goes to the pharmacy, comes back, and said she was 15 cents short. Mother says, don't worry about it, but Patty says, I want to go back and finish, give him the 15 cents. And the pharmacy is a block and a half away. So she leaves with the 15 cents. But Patty never returns home that night, and her mother calls police right away. In the early days of her disappearance, there was some suspicion that she might have just run away. But police conduct a door-to-door search, canvassing the surrounding neighborhood. And they share her description, along with the details of her disappearance, with the local media. Since Patty was a bit of a nomad, there were no specific areas for authorities to search. Patty was an attractive girl. She was 5'1", 120 pounds, and investigators said that even though she was only 14, she looked beyond her years. There were some older males in the neighborhood who were allegedly infatuated with her and who could possibly be considered predators. DeZeno told us that at the time of Patty's disappearance, there were some known serial rapists in the area. He also said there's an unusually high number of unsolved missing and murdered women in Chautauqua County. So there's around 45 unsolved cases in Chautauqua County. We have 20. 14 are women. 
over the over these years, the fact that there's so many unsolved murders and abductions of women, it weighs very heavily on the community. And boy, that comes through every single day. Tom Tarpley, another experienced investigator, is working alongside Tom DeZeno. The two detectives both hail from California law enforcement, but are now exclusively working cold cases in Chautauqua County, New York. Again, here's Tom DeZeno. We have had tremendous support, way beyond what Tom and I expected for two guys from California coming to New York, because people want closure on it. It's just, it's intolerable that a county of 133,000 people, 1,500 square miles, have that many murders, and that many of them are women. So it weighs on, on the psyche of the community, and I think... What's the impetus for us, the community? We asked if any of those other Chautauqua cases appear to be connected with Patty's murder. Detectives said that while most of the missing women were from Jamestown, those incidents came years later, and they found no connection to the Patricia Fairbanks case. By all accounts, Patty was just a young girl trying to make the best of her situation. Earlier, we mentioned that her stepfather had left the family under a cloud of suspicion. Well, Mary Haga was one of Patty's best friends in 1972, and she remembered how Patty told her that she was being molested by her stepfather. Patty was broken, and she was trying to find herself, put herself back together after that happened to her. This happened to her right before I met her, and she told me about this. She had been broken, and she was trying to put herself back together. Even though Patty confided in her best friend about being sexually abused, we were unable to find any information to indicate that the abuse had been reported or investigated by child welfare or law enforcement. So Patty was dealing with a lot in her life, especially for a 14-year-old. And then she disappears. The investigation into her disappearance continues. And then on December 29, 1972, Patricia's badly beaten body is discovered behind a house that sits just 75 yards from her front door. The discovery is made by the teenage son of the owner of the property who had just come home from school for the holiday break. Police say that Patty had suffered obvious facial and head trauma, and the coroner determined that she'd only been dead for two to three days, which is puzzling because she'd been missing for 31 days. So police at the time had a hard time believing the coroner's estimated time of death. Again, here's investigator Tom DeZeno. Uh, she's found beaten, strangled, and a concrete block laying next to her that was used to perhaps as a coup de grace. So a lot of discussions where she'd been for 31 days. As we mentioned, early in the investigation, police initially thought that Patty may have been a runaway, but that theory changed when her body was found. Their missing person case is now a murder investigation. Police interview everyone close to Patty. Her mother was questioned right away. They also questioned the stepfather as well as other people from the neighborhood. But Patty had a wide circle of friends and acquaintances, and for police to get a grasp on who she knew and how she knew them, investigators need to look at everyone. This case has become a puzzle, and detectives are finding more and more pieces. So Patricia was last seen by her family on November 28th, leaving her home to take 15 cents back to the pharmacy. But there's other witnesses who claim that they had seen Patty during the 31 days she was reportedly missing. Numbers of people have seen her 
in those 31 days. And these are people that know her. Could these people have been mistaken? Police questioned Patty's friends, many who were asked to take a lie detector test. One of those friends was Mary Haga. I was given a lie detector test. He didn't believe I didn't see Patty within 30 days that she was missing. I do not believe Patty was alive. I believe she was killed that night. Before she got back to the drugstore to give them that money, Patty would have came to me. She would have came to me or Bruce or she would have went back home. Who is Bruce? Well, he would have been Patty's fiance. He was reportedly 18 years old at the time. I know that her mom allowed her to get engaged. And I thought that was a little off the wall for her to be engaged at her age. But she was so happy. Patty was so happy when she showed me that ring. Yeah, I thought he was a nice guy. He made her happy. The interviews with Patty's friends don't lead to anything solid, and investigators move on. In the meantime, Patricia is laid to rest. But that coroner's report is still causing some confusion. It begs more questions than answers. Here's Tom DeZeno. The original coroner's report sets the death date two to three days, which adds even more controversy about where is she for those 31 days. If the coroner's estimated time of death is correct, that puts Patricia's murder on or around December 26th. But back in 1972, police didn't feel that that timeline was accurate. So within days of her burial, Patricia's body was exhumed and another pathologist conducted a second autopsy. Again, Investigator DeZeno. Those two corners are in agreement on some things, but not everything. But again, that the time of death looks like two to three days, and we have people that know her, young people, a 13-year-old, for instance, who said, yeah, I saw her at downtown shopping. She describes her. She describes the clothes she's in. So we really don't have a set date. We're now working, one of the things we're working on is putting modern coroner report and anthropologist and pathologist back on this case to see if we can get a more definitive date of when she died. Maybe modern technology can help in this case, but there's still something very curious about what was found at the crime scene. It's what they found by Patty's hand. Strangely, the 15 cents are found at the end of her outreached hand. It's uh, uh, quite a hug who done it, this case is, because everybody's got ideas. There's a whole lot of theories. The list of suspects, page long. And detectives are weeding through that list of suspects, including a 33-year-old man we're going to call Gary, who Patty babysat for. So this Gary was allegedly known for researching news stories about underage girls who had won school honors and such. And then he would contact them. We were told that when Patty's body was found, she was wearing two rings. One was the princess ring from her fiancé. The other was a man's ring, which was engraved with Gary's full name. Mary Haga never saw Patty wear that ring. Patty's mother reportedly took the ring away from Patty to give it back to Gary. How it ended up on Patty's hand is a mystery. Was it placed there after the fact, along with the 15 cents? The puzzle pieces continue to stack up. Now, I want to go back to the timeline. 
If you believe the witnesses who said that they saw Patricia downtown on December 22nd, why does she still have the 15 cents next to her hand when her body's found on December 29th? It's been 31 days since she left home to go back to the pharmacy with the change. It would seem that that clue would indicate she was killed shortly after leaving home and before reaching the pharmacy on November 28th. And if she was indeed alive after that day, why wouldn't she have returned home during the days between November 28th and December 29th, or at least be in contact with one of her closest friends? Investigator Dezino thinks it's highly unlikely that Patricia's body lay behind an occupied house for 31 days without it being seen. Again, puzzling. Now, let's go back to the investigation and the details of the autopsy. Investigator Dezino told me that there was no apparent sexual assault on Patricia, and I asked whether the choking was by a ligature or manually. Yeah, there's signs of both. Again, you know, we have, we have the dueling coroner's reports. And that's why we're so uh, needing of a new look at that. Uh, one says ligature, the other says hands. So we'll see. We have to sort that out. I asked the investigator if Patty had any defensive wounds. Not that you would call defensive wounds, but there certainly looks to be some viable evidence on her fingernails. And Investigator Dezino says that evidence gives them hope for a possible DNA match, something they believe could clear up some of the theories that have been suggested throughout the investigation. I also asked Investigator Dezino where he thinks Patricia may have been killed. He said one possibility is that she was killed near the pharmacy. I think there's real good indications on the evidence, Mark. There, uh, There's a fence between 10th and 9th. Well, there's some pretty good indication that she was thrown over that fence. I, I believe that. I think Tom does as well. Uh, the marks on the back of her legs, The when you look at the pictures from the crime scene, there's an indentation right perpendicular to her body where she's thrown. I'm pretty certain that she was thrown over that fence. Now, what sets that down is the concrete block that was used as a coup de grace to her. That wouldn't be done from across. That block is definitely from the foundation of a new garage that's going up. Is there two incidents here? It's another theory that we have. You know, somebody came around to finish her off, somebody in disgust, I don't know. That's again where the evidence is so important. So, if Patricia was killed near the pharmacy, it appears that she was then carried through an area behind some garages and backyards, thrown over a fence into the yard of her neighbor, then bludgeoned with a concrete block. That block was missing from the corner of the new foundation of a garage under construction at her neighbor's property. So, the perpetrator would have had to jump the fence or come around to get access to that block. You can see a general map of these locations and the crime scene in our show notes. That adds another mystery to it. If, if she indeed is thrown all over the fence, okay, how's the block there? Is it two theories? Did somebody come around and make sure whether there an additional party involved? That's something that we have to solve. The police at the time really focused on the owner of the home where she was found. 
That man was rumored to be a crabby old guy who often yelled at people cutting through his yard. But today's investigators said that they found he was actually a social kind of guy, and he liked Patty and her friends. Dezino and Tarpley don't believe he had anything to do with Patty's disappearance or death. There's just no motive, and as I said, he was he would he liked the girls, Patty and the girlfriends that she hung around with have nothing to say bad about this gentleman. So it's an issue that current investigators are dealing with. The hyper-focus of the original detectives on the owner of that property where Patty's body was found. Now, it was certainly a logical place to start. But detectives today think the initial investigation may have been so focused on one man that it distracted them from other possible leads and persons of interest. Especially because of the theory that Patricia may have been killed behind the pharmacy. Police today continue to look at all aspects of the case. Again, where was Patty for 31 days? Witnesses claim to have seen her, but her mother and best friend never saw her after November 28th. If the original pathologist is correct in the estimate of Patty's death being a few days before she was found, why did she still have the 15 cents by her outstretched hand? And there's the difference of opinion by the two pathologists about the method of strangulation, one saying by ligature, the other manual choking. And if that's not enough for police to wade through, there's also a report that Patty may have been kidnapped. There is one theory of people that have, that have said they saw Patty abducted. In terms of us being to validate that or verify that at any point, we've come up with zero. So it's a, is it one of the false theories like the owner of the house? Possible. Or sometimes those theories are to keep you distracted away from the real truth. So we've had to really go through that. And the evidence, Mark, is really going to be our godsend. But we have to get that DNA database solid before we do it. Police are currently enlisting the assistance of modern pathologists in reviewing the investigation and the autopsy reports. And they're working with a former FBI profiler in trying to determine who their suspect may be. They're also building their forensic case. At the time of this production, they're gathering familial DNA samples from several individuals in hopes of getting an identification from evidence collected back in 1972. Investigators are using new tools that original detectives didn't have, and they're aggressively interviewing and re-interviewing anyone they can find. But because this case is already 51 years old, some of the potential witnesses and persons of interest have passed on. Police want the public to know that they're eager to speak with anyone that can help them piece this old case together. There are people with Patty's age that are still alive. The crowd that she hung around with were every, anywhere from 13 to 17. Uh, she was in, allegedly engaged to a young man of, of 18. So those people, by and large, are still alive. And we've talked to a couple and we're still trying to find more. Detectives believe that there are more people out there who know what happened to Patty. And as they've been reinvestigating her murder, they made an interesting discovery in the case file. A Jamestown man named William Schwartzman had an encounter with Pennsylvania police about one month after Patricia's body was found. Investigator Tom Tarpley. In late January, January 31st, 1973, so a month later, Schwartzman comes into contact with the Northeast Pennsylvania Police Department 
and the Pennsylvania State Police. He tells him that his brother-in-law has property belonging to him. And he wants to let them know that he's going to go there and try to recover this property. And if anything bad goes happen, he wanted to, you know, let them know. He basically said, I may not be able to control myself. And he was looking for law enforcement's assistance. They quickly saw the situation as a civil uh, matter and told him, hey, you, you can't go there and you need to go before a magistrate and go through the legal process. But it appears that Schwartzman did not take the advice of Pennsylvania police to go to court over the property dispute with his brother-in-law. He broke into the house and then he attempted to strangle his, his brother-in-law. He, the brother-in-law was able to free himself from that and Schwartzman was taken into custody. That was on February 1st, 1973, which was the day after the encounter with Pennsylvania State Police and Northeast Police Department. Just to kind of close the door on, on 1973, the Jamestown Police Department becomes aware of the statements that Schwartzman made. I'm not really sure how they did. The reports to that aspect aren't clear, but they did somehow Schwartzman's name came up in their investigation about, again, about a month after her body was found. They took some logical steps. They discovered that Schwartzman had now been arrested for attempting to kill his brother-in-law in Northeast. He was in custody in the Erie County Jail in Erie, Pennsylvania. He was driving a stolen rental car at the time. But it wasn't just the fact that Schwartzman had been involved in the attempted murder of his brother-in-law. It was the shocking thing he told Pennsylvania police before the attack on his brother-in-law that caught the attention of these cold case investigators. During that somewhat heated back and forth between, and, and again, we're looking at this on paper, everybody is dead in this case. So we're looking at it on paper and trying to interpret, but it appears that there was somewhat of a heated conversation between Schwartzman and the Pennsylvania State Police. And during that conversation, Schwartzman made a couple of statements about killing Patty Fairbanks. What we don't know is if Pennsylvania State Police, because we're talking two different states now, Fairbanks killed in New York, Pennsylvania State Police troopers are obviously in the adjoining state of Pennsylvania. We don't know if they were aware of the Fairbanks murder, but they did something really good. They documented very carefully the words that Schwartzman used when he made those statements. And those statements are consistent with things that we see at the crime scene and that we also see on the body of Patricia Fairbanks when her autopsy was conducted. If you want to jump forward from 73, 1973 to 2023, that's where the investigation kind of takes off at an accelerated pace. In 1973, police went to Pennsylvania to look at Schwartzman's car. When they searched it, they found something interesting. Jamestown police went to the location where the stolen rental car was. They searched that vehicle and they found identification belonging to two women in that car. Unfortunately, what it appears is that although they had the names of the people, they weren't able to completely identify them or determine where they lived. And it appears that their leads to those two people dried up. 
they attempted to interview Schwartzman and he was not cooperative with them. So in 1973, the leads go dry on Schwartzman, they document everything, and then they move on to the other potential suspects. Detectives in 1973 didn't have access to the databases that are available today. But when the cold case team began researching those women's names, a crime analyst identified one of them through an old obituary. Here's investigator Tarpley. From that obituary, a, a brother was listed for one of the women. He is still alive and still living here in Jamestown. So we contacted him and explained you know, what we were doing. He immediately knew about the Patricia Fairbanks homicide, and I'll get to that in a moment. But what he told us is that his sister, whose identification was in Schwartzman's car, she dated Schwartzman, okay? She lived essentially across, um, I'll say across the street, but within a few hundred yards of where Fairbanks' body was found, okay? She also had a stepbrother, okay? The stepbrother was a friend of Patricia Fairbanks. And this man they're talking to? had an additional piece of information about his sister and Schwartzman that really drew the attention of investigators. And I'm going to refer to her as Schwartzman's girlfriend. The brother of Schwartzman's girlfriend told us he was about 19 years old at this time. And he says he remembers Schwartzman, his sister, and the stepbrother and Fairbanks all being together you know, in the house. So it appears from what we were able to gather is that prior to Fairbanks' murder, there was a deep connection between Schwartzman and Fairbanks. Investigator Tarpley also told us that the brother of Schwartzman's girlfriend lived in a home next to the pharmacy. So here's what detectives think happened the night Patricia disappeared. She had gone to get the Q-tips she had purchased them, but she was 15 cents short. She took them back home to her mother and she asked for the 15 cents to go back to the pharmacy to pay for them. And she was never seen again on that second trip. That night again, we believe it's that night, the brother was inside the house and shortly after dark, he heard a blood curdling scream coming from the back of his residence. He, Got to the window as quickly as he could. It was it was dark. He couldn't see anything. And everything had quieted down at that point. There was a bar across the street, and he thought that the noise might be related to, you know, an incident at the bar. But what became important in terms of our investigation is that the rear of their house is literally 75 yards from where Fairbanks' body was found. More pieces of the puzzle are coming together. We have the connection between Schwartzman and Patty. And we know that Patty was seen heading from her home back to the pharmacy with the 15 cents. That pharmacy being in close proximity to both Schwartzman's girlfriend's place and her brother's place where he heard the blood-curdling scream coming from the back of his residence. And then there's that odd encounter Schwartzman had with Pennsylvania police just about a month after Patty's body was found. Police aren't saying exactly what Schwartzman said to Pennsylvania troopers back in 1973, but whatever he said caused investigators to now hone in on Schwartzman. Here's investigator Tarpley. 
there is a key element to that path between the back of the brother's house and the location where Fairbanks body was found. And Schwartzman made that statement. And it's a statement, the, the terminology that he used is nothing that was ever released to the media, all of that. And we have a map um, the New York State Police, Jamestown Police Department had a, a forensic artist, if you will. He came and did a very detailed drawing of that, that neighborhood. And we can see that now that we've interviewed this brother, we can see that that, that path it is just as Schwartzman described the Pennsylvania State Police. So that was, you know, compelling evidence for us to, at that point, go, okay, this is a person of interest and this is a person that we need to do a deep dive on. And as police today are investigating Schwartzman's history in Pennsylvania, they learned something else, something that happened about 10 years before Patricia Fairbanks' murder. We started to do that deep dive on Schwartzman and his background for obvious reasons. We were doing interviews out in the state of Pennsylvania. A resident out in Northeast Pennsylvania told us, hey, look, I know someone who lives in the area who Schwartzman attempted to murder when she was a young girl in the late 1950s. And we were able to get that person's information, go speak to that person directly who is still alive. And she detailed for us a, a really frightening encounter that she was very lucky to not be a homicide victim of Mr. Schwartzman. Schwartzman would have been in his 30s at the time of the attack on the five-year-old girl in Northeast Pennsylvania. Investigator Tarpley discovered that that little girl was the daughter of Schwartzman's then-girlfriend. The five-year-old was on the bed when he came in, and he tried to strangle her. She screamed, alerting her mother, and Schwartzman left. And now, police are looking at the totality of his known criminal history, starting with the attempted strangulation of that little girl in the late 50s. Then, the attempted strangulation of his brother-in-law about a month after Patricia Fairbanks' strangled and bludgeoned body is discovered in 72. And, as we mentioned earlier, key locations connected to Patricia's murder, including Schwartzman's girlfriend's residence, her brother's residence, and the location where Patricia's body was found, all of which are in proximity to the pharmacy. You can see these locations on the map in our show notes. Again, here's Investigator Tarpley. Now, they're all critical you know, pieces and how they ultimately play out in this, but certainly the information rises to that level of, okay, we need to take a hard look at, at Mr. Schwartzman. But Schwartzman is dead. He died in 1997 at his home in Warren, Pennsylvania. Investigator Tarpley said that his decomposing body was found sometime after his death and he was cremated, but they still have the ability to study his DNA from his sons. Uh, fortunately, in this case, uh, Mr. Schwartzman uh, ended up with three very nice men, um, I think, that were raised well by their mother, and they've all been very cooperative with the investigation and have given us all, each of them has given us a DNA swab. In this case, police have had the good fortune to be able to collect DNA from family members, something that wasn't scientifically possible not so long ago. But for detectives working a cold case, they have to be innovative in reconstructing the missing parts of a case, especially when people from the time aren't around anymore. So again, with the exception, well, I'll just say most all are deceased, so unfortunately we can't speak um, with them. 
So a lot of this is going to hinge on physical evidence, which we do have physical evidence in this case. So we've been going, much like we did with Mr. Schwartzman, we've been going through the process of obtaining DNA swabs from surviving relatives of potential suspects. The one unusual thing for me in this case, I can't speak for, for Tom, I haven't asked him this question yet, but this is the first case that I've ever had where 100% of the people that we ask for a DNA swab, uh, give it to us. Even Schwartzman's kids who, you know, may have a natural desire to keep their father out of it, have all said to us, said, look, if he did it, we're, you know, this is a young girl that was murdered and we're not going to hinder the investigation in any way. We're going to cooperate fully. So nothing nice about a murder of a 14-year-old girl, but as far as the investigation, we've gotten great cooperation from getting those uh, DNA swabs. Investigator Tarpley and I talked about how biological evidence testing has developed since our early days in policing. We started with ABO blood typing that was used to either include or exclude suspects using class characteristics. Then, in the 1980s, DNA evidence broke a new barrier using unique individual characteristics. And in recent years, genetic genealogy has allowed investigators to determine biological relationships through the DNA of ancestors and descendants. So even though some of the people in this cold case are deceased, it doesn't mean that their DNA profile is gone. So police are diligently working on several new leads, as well as revisiting old leads from the original investigation. But what they're looking for from the public is information on other possible victims. And they believe that there are likely other victims out there. So what we need from the public, obviously, you know, Schwartzman is at the top of our list currently. So based on his criminal history and just his life story, we believe that there are other victims out there. Maybe not homicide victims, but victims who survived the attack that for whatever reason didn't come forward. The case that I talked to you about involving Schwartzman and the five-year-old girl from the 1950s, that was an unreported incident. She really hadn't talked about that outside of family and some other trusted people. And it was just a fluke because we were doing the groundwork over in Pennsylvania that we found out about it. So we suspect there may be other similar cases because we want to see if what we saw in the Fairbanks homicide matches other cases involving him. So if people are, are aware of, and those victims may be deceased now, but if they have living relatives who remember those incidents, they should contact us here at the Chautauqua County Sheriff's Office in Mayville, New York. We would appreciate that. The other thing is, is we know that Schwartzman was connected to that neighborhood. I've read reports that he was a man that walked a lot. We know that his girlfriend lived across the street from that pharmacy that Fairbanks was headed to when she was likely killed. And we believe there may be other encounters, you know, in that neighborhood, maybe not physical assaults, but just encounters. And we'd like to talk to people that ran across him and what, what that encounter, you know, consisted of. In addition to Schwartzman's residing at the rescue mission in Jamestown, New York, he was born in Erie, Pennsylvania. He lived in Northeast Pennsylvania had a farm in South Ripley, New York, which is the first town when you enter New York State from Northeast Pennsylvania. And in his later life, he lived in Warren, Pennsylvania. Investigator Tarpley said there's one incident of stalking from the Warren area that they learned about. 
uh, we've seen at least one report of uh, stalking and harassing behavior on the part of Mr. Schwartzman against a female resident who believed that, that he was going to kill her. He didn't he didn't physically assault her, but just his behavior, she was worried that she would be killed. He was eventually uh, taken into custody for some stalking behavior, and it came to a stop after that. But uh, Warren is another area that we're focused on. Warren, Pennsylvania is another area that we're focused on. We asked what Schwartzman's occupation or trade was. He was a farmer at one point. He was selling eggs and selling beef. Um, he had a he had a farm. Looking and we we've got a lot of his records. Looking at his records, he didn't seem to have a lot of initiative uh, to work. He was talented. Um, he was kind of a handyman. He he had some he had some skills, but it does not appear that he had the motivation to go and work. Um, he did come from a wealthy family, and it appears that they supported him for for a long time and he just never although he had some jobs he just never seemed to really have that desire to work hard and support his family and his family life fell apart because of that we also asked about any other criminal history for schwartzman that we hadn't already discussed to answer your question we don't know it, it appears he got he ended up getting convicted of a burglary or a breaking the entering charge in Pennsylvania. He spent some time in custody for that and then uh, was released. It appears Mr. Schwartzman got a lot of breaks along the way. And I, I think if it turns out that he's our suspect, the, the system failed uh, Patricia Fairbanks because there were a lot of warning signs about him prior to 1972. And there was criminal behavior that probably could have been dealt with differently than it was. If it turns out to be Schwartzman, uh, again, it's a shame what happened. Fairbanks should not have been a one, one of his victims. As far as convictions, I, I don't see any. He was referred for hospitalization for a lot of these offenses, a lot of arrests and a lot of contacts with law enforcement. I can tell from looking at records, Pennsylvania, the judge would court order him into treatment. And then he would spend, a, a, in some cases, a, years in treatment, but then he would be released. And not long after being released, then he would end up reoffending. So where does the case go from here? Authorities are hopeful that with the help of DNA and other investigative results, they'll finally be able to put all of the pieces of this complex puzzle together whether it points to Schwartzman or any other person of interest. Right now, the key thing is, is just to get that physical evidence processed and let's see where that takes us. And William Schwartzman? As far as Schwartzman goes, we've put his photo out there, we put some details out there, and there are probably people that know things, and we understand reluctance. Nobody wants to be in the middle of one of these cases, but... It is a murder of a 14-year-old girl. There is a surviving family member that wants, wants some closure, and, and really the community needs closure as well. So for those listening to your podcast, if somebody does know about Schwartzman or about any of the other people that are involved in this case, please pick up the phone, do the right thing, and call the sheriff's office. Patricia Fairbanks had plans for her future. It was something that she and her best friend Mary talked about as teenagers, something they both aspired to. We had no career except for ourselves, and we were going to live next door together. That was her goal, to grow up 
get married and have a family on a white picket fence and our Prince Charming. If you have any information about the murder of Patricia Fairbanks or about any potential victims of William A. Swartzman, call investigators at 716-753-4578 or send an email to unsolvedchautauqua at sheriff.us. This contact information, along with a map, timeline, and photos, are available in our show notes at apbcoldcase.com. Thanks for listening to APB Cold Case. Tell us about your cold case at apbcoldcase at spawngroup.com. APB Cold Case is an original Spawn Group production.